0: right. well good morning everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here at our church and before we get into tonight's, or not tonight's, this morning's message, I wanted to preview a couple things just you know what's happening in the life of our church. Again, as mentioned earlier today, it's actually the beginning of Holy Week, which is the last part of Lent. And Holy Week, if you don't know, uh, begins today, which is technically known as Palm Sunday. Um, but it's a way that churches all around the world that we pr- uh, prepare for Easter, which is going to be next Sunday, and we want to reflect upon um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as mentioned earlier, we're going to be posting reflections on our social media page uh, each day. I, I don't know if what you guys do right now when we post like those videos, but I really encourage you as a church to pause and take a moment to look at those videos. It's not going to be like the traditional, like, Jesus did this on Monday, Jesus on Tuesday, but instead Instead, we want to really uh, encourage our church to equip our church to understand what the significance of Easter really is. And so each day we're going to post something. Also, uh, Good Friday, we have a Good Friday service that will be coming up. And again, we invite you all to come to that. Um, It's a one time for us as a church to gather and to be intentional on a Friday like this. And also, it's not going to be that traditional Good Friday service where you hear a message and we just kind of break bread together. But we actually want this to be a time to pause. And invite you as members to Lord's Supper that day. Uh, But on Sunday, it's going to be our Easter Sunday service. And as mentioned earlier, we're going to have the celebration of Lord's Supper to continue to Easter. And we're going to eat lunch together and have a feast. And so hope you could stick around. And if you know anybody who's looking for a church that weekend, we'd love for them to join us. Uh, After that, we're actually going to be doing... It's going to be a a month of uh, kind of reintroducing reintroducing, uh, this ordinance called Baptism. Um, some of you, you are aware of what baptism, how our church views baptism. Some of you, you, come from different churches that might have talked about it. But one thing that we want to do is reintroduce baptism to our church because it's been a while since we actually talked about baptism. And so what we're going to do is we want to kick that off with having a message about baptism. Uh, we also want to do a seminar for all of you who are pedo baptists or even baptized as babies and you want to talk about, well, what's the difference is? We actually want to do a seminar about that for anyone who's interested in discussing that together. We also want to do a sign up for baptisms for anybody who has not been baptized, but wish to be baptized. We're also going to have a baptism service, and one unique thing is it's not going to be after worship, we want to have it during worship, so that'll be interesting. Hopefully, Buena Park doesn't kick us out, but we're planning to do do that, and that'll be awesome. And then afterwards, uh, we hope from now till the end of June, all the way summer, we're going to be going through our next sermon series through the letter of James. And so, if Genesis felt very big picture and story-wise, like it just looked like a, a big story to like reflect about. James is very practical, very uh, rebuking, and look forward to going through that. But that's kind of what's ahead, just to let you know what our church is going through. Uh, today, though, uh, we've been going through for about two months uh, through a series in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. Um, It's due to the story of Joseph, and today we reach the end, Genesis 50. It's not just the end of Joseph's story, but this is actually the end of the entire book of Genesis. And we to be looking at uh, verses 15 to 26, and at our church, one thing we like to do is we like to remind ourselves that we don't worship a God who's dead, but we believe He's alive and He is speaking to us now. And so if you guys have your Bibles, your programs, we all rise together. And as we read this, uh, let's really ask the Lord to stir in our hearts through his word as he speaks to us, starting verse 15, this last passage in Genesis. So starting in verse 15, this is what it says in Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge to Joseph, before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father." Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's son to the dirt generation. The son of Manasseh's son, Mekir, was recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land that he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him in place and placed him in the coffin in Egypt. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, as we prepare for this Easter season, may today's message through the final chapter in Genesis speak and stir into our hearts and to be able to be renewed in our minds and to be able to prepare our hearts for what you have to say for us this week, this day, and for us to just be able to walk with you and since you are walking with us, we pray this all in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. If you're born in the 1950s, or the 1980s, or even, or even the 1990s, um, you'll notice that the commercials back then, they look a lot different than the commercials today. Uh, the typical commercial or advertisement looks something like this. It gives lots of words, right? Lots of words. Because back then, the philosophy was, they want to explain to you the ingredients of a Coca-Cola, the technical details of a, of a video recorder, or the, the power of a computer to convince you to purchase this item. And so when you look at that, you go, oh yeah, you know, I could see how it would be helpful to learn what the ingredients are of Coke or the details of this camcorder or this computer to convince me to potentially buy it. Uh, but we know that today that philosophy is really different. No one does this anymore. This is what the uh, advertisements look like now. Uh, that Coke advertisement, if you don't know anything about Coke, all you see is two people drinking it and they look happy. Because they're trying to show, like, oh, this is what Coke does when you have it. When you actually get a Coke, it brings people together. It makes you happy. They don't, you don't know anything about that camera. You don't know the details, the specs, except the fact that oh, it looks nice. The, the image is clear and sharp. And I don't know nothing about that laptop, but it looks awesome. Like you just kind of want that because the philosophy has changed. Uh, it's not about explaining what. This product is giving you information about the ingredients, but wants to show you once you get it, what does it look like? How could it change your life? How could it shape your life? And the reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what Genesis is trying to do for the past few weeks in the story of Joseph. As mentioned earlier, the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the whole premise of chapter one to eleven is the idea that we have a problem that's called sin, and that's the reason why there's so much brokenness in the world and our lives. And that's why uh, generally to below 36, we see that God, he makes a promise. This promise to Abraham to bless him and to use his family to bless all the nations. And then lastly, in the story that we've been looking at in the past few weeks, Genesis 37 to 50, God has a picture to show you what happens when God's promise is playing out in your life. What does it look like? And Joseph's life is supposed to be a picture of that. By the way, I'm going to miss this. We, you guys have seen this so many times. If you remember anything about Genesis, you'll remember these three blocks, right? These three blue blocks that we repeat over and over again. The problem, the promise, the picture. Um, and what's interesting is when you see this picture of what happens when God's redeeming plan, his covenant, whatever you want to call it, when it enters into your life, what does it look like? And we see that in the story of Joseph. It doesn't look like a bunch of answers where God tells you, this is why I'm doing all these things. But instead, what we see is God takes you on a journey. It's a journey where God often is silent, where there's all these seeming coincidences. But at the end of that journey, what God promises to the world, to Joseph, and for us, is that this God, he's going to overcome whatever evil is in this world with good. The ultimate promise is all the evil and brokenness and suffering that is in this world that we brought upon ourselves, God's going to use all that for goodness ultimately. But the question is, well, what does it look like for us? Like what how does this actually play out for God to overcome evil with good? Like what's the end goal? What we kind of saw like the process of it, but what's like the final picture of that? And what we're gonna see in this last story, this last part of Joseph's life, is we're gonna see this, this end goal. We're gonna see this picture of this is how God overcomes evil with good in these particular areas. Of Joseph's life. And by looking how God overcomes evil with good in these particular areas of Joseph's life, we can get a glimpse of how God will overcome evil with good in our lives. So with that being said, what are the areas in Joseph's life, in our lives, where God's going to overcome evil with good? And here are the three. Number one, God overcomes evil with good in our relationships. Secondly, God overcomes evil with good in our pain. And lastly, God overcomes evil with good in our future hope. So in our our relationships, and by the way, we have to do something for that to happen. So we'll talk about that. In our pain, we have to see what God does with our pain. And lastly, our future hope. Let's wait and see what God brings for that. So first, God overcomes evil with good. Jacob in chapter 49, their father, Joseph's dad, he's old. And he blesses all of his children. Remember last week, he blesses Judah for some reason with the scepter and the kingdom. And then Jacob, he's so old, he eventually passes away. The family, they bury Jacob in the land of Canaan, which is super far. And then they all travel back to Egypt. It's Joseph now, it's his brothers, it's all their wives and kids and so forth. And the brothers, after they come back to Egypt, we find out that they are freaked out. Look at verse 15, what happens. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering that we caused him. Joseph's brothers, they are scared because they remember that, man, we, we jacked Joseph. Joseph, as a kid, we were resentful towards him. We sent him off as a slave. Joseph was in prison because of the brothers for over 20 years. And what's interesting is uh, Joseph, he actually forgave them. If you were there a few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 45, Joseph reconciled his brothers. Remember, he's like, I'm your brother. And they all hugged. Uh, but you know when that was, chapter 45 to now, chapter 50? 17 years ago. 17 years has passed from the reconciliation to their father passing away. And so the brothers, they're now all freaked out because they're thinking, what if Joseph, He actually was only nice to us because our dad was still alive. You ever saw the Godfather part two? Uh, there's, if you guys don't know that, that movie, it's the best movie. You've got to watch it. Uh, but it's about the, you know, this gangster mobster named Michael Corleone, and his brother betrayed him, and his brother was freaked out. He thought his mobster brother would kill him. He's like, why would I ever kill my mother's son? I would never do that. But then a few years later, the, the mom died, and that's when he whacked him because he didn't want to kill his brother and grieve his aging mother. So he waited till his mom died, and then he killed his brother who betrayed him. And that's kind of what the brothers are thinking here. The brothers are like, oh my gosh, Joseph was really nice to us, but what if he was only doing that because he didn't want to grieve our elderly father? And now that he died, is he going to jack us? Now that begs a question, I can understand why Michael Corleone's brother would be freaked out, because, you know, they're mobsters, that's what mobsters do. But why are the brothers so scared of Joseph? And I think the guess I could make is that it's because the brothers, they are so used to vengeance in their family. This is what they did. Joseph, the way that the family worked, the the, all that they're used to, it's so broken, it's so messed up that when you do something wrong, they are used to the idea of retribution, of anger, of getting each other back. I knew a dating couple where whenever they would get into a a fight, uh, the girlfriend thought that, oh, we're fighting right now. I guess it's over. Thank you for this relationship. And she thought that he was going to break up with her. He's like, why do you keep doing that? No, we're just fighting. Like It's normal. And the reason why she thought that was because every time I fought with somebody in the past, we always just broke up. And so it was weird for her that you could fight and still be a couple. And so she had to learn because all she was used to was fighting equals breakups. That's kind of what the brothers were thinking. Whenever you do something bad, something bad's going to happen because it's, 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 it's just conflict in their family. But notice that because they were anticipating vengeance from Joseph, they, they had a plan where they're going to trick their brother. Verse 16, look what it says. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Progression of the servants of the God of your father. So notice that Joseph's brothers, by the way, uh, Jacob never said this. We don't see anywhere in the Bible where Jacob told him, please forgive your brothers. That's never there. Most likely what's going on is, again, they're freaked out. They make up a story to try to trick their brother to forgive them. And they're trying to, in other words, get their brother to see that, oh, you know what dad's last word was to you? Be, your Daddy says, be nice to your brothers after he dies. And Joseph, when he hears this, how does he respond? Not anger, not confusion or suspicion, but verse 17, look what it says. Joseph wept. For some reason, he got emotional about this. And I think and the reason why scholars think he got emotional is because for the past 17 years Joseph was taking care of his family. He was caring for them in Egypt, he forgave them. And yet the relationship it was still broken. They still weren't good and that grieved Joseph. I remember I had a friend where we were close friends and all of a sudden he was going through this weird dark season, he started ghosting me. Where I'd message him, I'd text him, no reply. I wish him happy birthday, no reply. It was my birthday, no text from him. I'm like, what is going on? And so I just text him every once in a while. I ask people what's going on with this guy that no one knew. He ghosted everybody apparently. And then finally, like five months later, he like, texted me going, hey, bro, how are you doing? I'm like, how am I doing? Like, what, what's going on? Like, I've been texting for these past, like, however many months. We should meet up. And so we met up, and you know, I confronted him, going, hey, what's going on, man? And he was really like, apologetic. He was, I'm so sorry. Like, I was just going through a tough season. I ghosted everybody. It's nothing personal. And so I was like, it's all good. Just, you know, just don't do that again. If I text you, just be a homie and just say, hey, it's, what's up? I'm busy right now, and it's no problem. He was like, yeah, no problem. My bad, man. And I was like, good, no problem. We all reconciled. Later on, texted him again. Doesn't text me back. Ghosted me again. How would you feel if you had a relationship like that? Or somebody who wronged you and you try to reach out to them and forgive them and they wrong you again, what would you do? If you're like me, you just kind of roll your eyes at them going, that guy. Or you be really passive-aggressive and you like unfollow them on social media. Or you mute them on social media so that you don't have to see their stories anymore. Or you just kind of have like this distant relationship with them. That's how we naturally respond, right? But Joseph... He does something that's very counterintuitive to how the human heart responds. Where, he's, where we see him in this evil that's going on with their brother and his relationship with them, it's overcome with goodness by practicing something that's so hard yet so simple, something called forgiveness. Look what Joseph, uh, he's, he forgives his brother, he embraces them, he comforts them. In verse 21 it says, don't be afraid, I'm going to take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He forgave them, he restored the relationship. And what's fascinating though is the reason why. Like what gave what made Joseph able to do something that makes it so hard for us to do? And we see it in verse 19 is a very kind of strange passage when you think about it. It says in verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, am I in the place of God? I have yet to hear anybody say this to me. Tom, I forgive you. You know why? Am I in the place of God? Like what does that mean? And why does Joseph say this? John Lynn, he's a pastor out in New York and he's, I, I liked his observations where he was saying, Joseph is actually touching upon us something very uh, deep about the human heart that we don't even recognize, but it's oftentimes in us, which is that human beings, we cannot help but put ourselves oftentimes in the place of God and that causes a lot of our problems. Uh, for example, worry. A lot of us here are worried about different things in life, but why are you worried? And if you think about it, Worry arises in our hearts when hardships arise for you and you think you know what the resolution is, but the resolution is not happening according to your schedule. For example, you're worried because you you, you want a job. You need a job right now, a good job, because financially things are hard, you're in debt or so forth, but you are not finding a job right now according to your timeline. So what happens? You're now worried because it's so clear what should happen And it's not happening, so there's fear that arises in your heart. Or some of you, you want to get married, ideally before the age of 40 or before 50. And sometime around there, you want that. But now it's been a long time and you have not found the ideal spouse. And for you, as you get older and older, and you see all these other people getting married around you, according to the timeline you want to get married, what happens? You worry. You're worrying right now. But do you realize why you worry? you've taken God's place where you have a plan in your life, you have a schedule and all the steps to get there, and it's not happening. And so it's freaking you out. Now let's reverse that. Let's take another step and not talk about worry, but what about your anger? When people wrong you, why is it so hard to be cool with them? For a lot of us, it's because they can't get away with it. They have to learn their lesson before we could be good. If I forgive them right now and make things all good, then how do I know I'm not going to do it again? You see, we have all these different thoughts of what needs to happen in our relationships because if we go deep, deep down, we're doing what Joseph learned we shouldn't do, which is we take the place of God where we know what's right, we know what's good, what's evil. And what happens when we have that mentality, there's a cycle of vengeance that just takes place in our relationships. And Genesis kind of catches on to this. That's why all the relationships in Genesis before Joseph, you always see people in conflict with each other. Cain and Abel, brothers, Fight each other. One the Conflict. This is the cycle of sin that's the cycle. But Joseph, even though he went through the most suffering of all the brothers, Joseph breaks the cycle. The cycle of vengeance that is so common in the human heart, and he breaks it by practicing forgiveness. What enabled Joseph to forgive? It wasn't because he's just this righteous person who just was born righteous or his parents taught him well. But remember, God took Joseph on a journey these past two months that we looked at, there was a journey that Joseph went on, and a rec- he made, through that journey, he recognized something. He's not God. Because no way could Joseph have planned out this life of his that would lead him to this place that he is in chapter 50. It humbled him to realize that he is not God. God is God, and that's actually the right way to look at the world. Does any of this relate to you? Do you have any relational issues in your life right now where you feel like, you know, I know best. I know when to make things cool because it's not, it's not the right time right now. Let me go back to that friend who to me two times. Uh, you know that friend, if he came to me right now and said, hey, I'm so sorry, I'd actually be like, it's cool, man. Oh, When I think about him, I don't get bothered. It's more like you know, that guy. That's kind of, it's kind of an annoyance, but literally all we need is one conversation and we'd be cool. You know why? Because that guy, uh, his life is pretty messed up right now. Like when I hear about him, like he's not doing well. His marriage is not doing well. Life with kids is not doing well. All the He ghosted everybody. So all those people, they all hate him. And so I'm like, man, all these people hate him. <laughs> okay, I feel kind of bad for the guy. And so if he came to me and we had reconciliation, it's all good. It's totally fine. I have another friend. Similar thing. Also similar like issues with ghosting. Man, why do people ghost me? But anyways, it's a similar thing going on. And when I think about that person, it's actually kind of hard to be happy for them or to even want to meet with them and have forgiveness. You know why? Because that person, he's doing well. Like his, life, his marriage is awesome. His kids are awesome. Everybody around him loves him. They're like, man, he's awesome. He's doing really well. And so now when I think about them, I'm like, you know, that, pers- that fool didn't learn anything. He needs to pay. He needs to like learn that what he does is not good. And so I could imagine if I were, you know, we had a moment of reconciliation, I'm like, you gotta say, you have to see it, dude. You have to know that you really understood what's going on. Now, what's the difference between these two individuals? They're both doing the same thing, but the difference is I am determining what they need before things are good. Because the first person, man, he has enough vengeance. Like, his cup is full. Vengeance just got poured upon him from everybody. Dude, I feel sorry for the guy. But this second person, dude, his cup is empty. He needs more vengeance in his life. And I'll gladly give it to him before things could ever be good. What am I doing? I am putting myself in the place of God. I am determining what needs to happen before I could offer this idea of forgiveness. I am continuing the cycle of vengeance that we see began in the book of Genesis. And I'm living this out today. And a lot of us, were doing the same thing. There are messed up relationships in your life where you feel it's all good. You know, they didn't learn their lesson. If they said sorry, okay, but they're just kind of now until they do that. Your vengeance is being expressed to them. And it's not in this proactive way, but it's through your silence. It's through your unfollowing on social media. It's through gossip or through slander. But Joseph, his journey taught him that, you know, when you journey with God, you realize the worst thing you could ever do is presume to sit in the place of God. Because the more you try to be like God, the less you actually become like him. The more you try to sit in his place, the less you reflect who God is. Because you're not meant to be God. You're not meant to make those types of choices. But the more you give up control, the more you let go of your need to let life happen a certain way, that's when you become more like the son of God. Remember, Jesus Christ, he was declared a son of God, the most perfect human being, but yet when he walked on this earth, he did not try to unleash, have control, and make sure he had his power was known, and vengeance displayed, but what did Jesus do? He did not seek equality with God as something to be grasped, but he let it go. And that means a way for us to be truly human, we must, like Christ, the true son of God, be able to be humble enough to let go of the wrongs, of the hurts, of the weight. Vengeance and just and so before I move on, let me ask you, when you look at your relationships, especially the broken one, are you push are you like contributing to the cycle of brokenness in your life? Or are you making steps to bridge the gap to end that cycle for you? I know it's not easy. I know I'm not saying you have to just forgive that person you hate, but are you taking steps to help the curse of sin not have its full effect in your life? Some of you're really angry at your parents. And it's not explosive, it's just like this cool distance. And maybe a small step, instead of just continuing that chasm between you and your mom and your dad, what's a step you could take to kind of decrease that? Would it be a text message going, hey, in your brain I hate you, but I hope you're doing well. Or hey, happy Mother's Day, happy Father's Day. Or some of you, you have a friend who you've ignored and they're just in the past and when you think about them, you just don't like them. Um, but maybe instead of just creating that distance and continuing it, maybe you should Start following them on social media again. Ignore their stories. Ignore it. It might annoy you too much. Like their post. When they, have birth, they give birth to a baby, hey, like it. It's all good. Doesn't mean to have to be their best friends again, but what, are you doing anything to proactively break that cycle of vengeance that's there in the human heart, that's there in human history, that God, he wants to overcome with goodness? This is the key to that, is with have to let go of our desire for vengeance, for control. But trust that God is in his place and he will take care of that. So that's the first thing we see in Joseph's life. He overcomes evil with good because he's able to recognize he's not God. And because of that, he's able to forgive. Here's the second thing that we see in the life of Joseph. We see that God, he overcomes evil with good, not just in Joseph's relationships, but also in his pain. Now, Joseph, he was able to let go of being God and forgive people. Because Joseph, he, like, looked at his life, he's like, "Who am I, you know, I want this journey with God, and God's in control, so it's all good. And you would think, like, wow, Joseph, really? How did you come to that conclusion? Because if I look at your life, Joseph, your life looks like it sucks. And it looks like God, he, like, really messed up with Joseph's life. So, for example, uh, Joseph, most of his teenage years, he was sold to slavery. What a crappy life. Uh, he was falsely accused for doing the, wrong, the right thing. That sucks. All of his 20s and 30s, Joseph was in prison. That sucks. You, almost, you look at that going, that's a really crummy guy to trust your life with if God's in control. And most of you, that's how you, we think, right? You look at your life, you think, man, God, he did you dirty. Like, you understand that life won't be perfect, but did it have to be this painful? Did my childhood have to have that much trauma? Did my parents have to be that messed up? Did that breakup have to be that painful? I don't mind pain, but that much pain? And that's when we get a little bit bitter, and we aren't happy about if this is really God in control. But verse 20, this is uh, the, the, the key verse that we see, not only in chapter 50, but of all of Genesis. This is what Joseph tells his brothers when he explains how he views life. Verse 20, look what it says. You planned evil against me, to his brothers, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result. The survival of many people. Now, this verse is, again, the most famous passage in Genesis. I'm sure many of you have heard of this passage before, but it's often used in a very cliche way just to comfort people, and we don't really recognize what Joseph is doing here. What's Joseph saying when he makes this statement in verse 20? And I would argue that Joseph, what he's arguing is that after journeying with God, he understands how life works now. He's explaining his worldview to his brothers. If you're a pessimist, what's your worldview? Life sucks. Everything sucks. Marriage is going to end in divorce. Why have kids? They suck. You're going to die. That's like a pessimist, right? That's, you just interpret everything that way. The optimist, life is great. Life is beautiful. Why are you so depressed? There's sunshine. There's beauty and so forth. If you're a very narcissistic person, life is about me. It's about me. It's all about me. That's a narcissistic person. If you're American, you can do it. Do Work hard and you can do it. Just do it. Just work hard. and that's going to happen. Then you're going to have success. If you're a religious person, how do you view life? God's in control. God's plan. God's going to work out all things together for good. And it's true. You know, if you're this is Joseph, he had that mentality that God has a plan, that he is going to do something. Genesis 12, this is the mantra of Joseph's family. It says in chapter 12 verse 1 to 3, "The Lord said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all the peoples in the earth will be a blessing, will be blessed through you." This is God's plan for the world. And Joseph knew this. And yet, if this is what's happening, why is there so much sin and brokenness? And even in Genesis by itself, there is so much sin in this story. There's abuse, there's rape, there's misogyny, there's genocide. Like what is going on if God's will is in control? And this is where Joseph, he went away from this simplistic, oh, God's just in control religious mindset. So all of a sudden he understands the world in a more nuanced place. Where even though there is God's will and there is God's plan, there are many other plans at play in this life. That's why in verse twenty again he says, "You plant evil against me. You plant evil," and that's at odds with God's plan. But that explains why there's so much messed upness and so much brokenness here. Let me put it a different way: When you look at the world, why is there like what's going on? Like who controls the world? Like what's happening? And the way the Bible explains it, there's at least four different plans going on at the same time, okay? Here's the first plan. You have God's plan. God has a plan to bless, his, to bless the world, to redeem it, to bring healing and forgiveness. That's God's plan. And again, amen to that. But why is there so much evil? Why is there so much suffering? Why so much pain? That's because there's another plan going on. There's our plans. We think we know what's best to make us happy. We have desires, and sometimes those desires are good. And sometimes they're not so good. What makes it worse is we don't just have our plans, but here's a third plan going on—other people's plans. If you want to know what that looks like, just get married. You'll see two plans clashing. Other people have plans. What makes them happy? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not good. And then the final one is what the Bible describes as Satan, the rulers, and the authorities. Where there's a spiritual world out there that's at war with God, and they're also influencing the world with their plan. Now this is how the world works. Different plans at work, God's plan, your plans, people's plans, Satan's plans. And the most troubling thing is you have no idea which one is taking place right now in your current moment. So, for example, you lose your job. And let's pretend the only idea you have, the only plan that's working in your brain is God's plan. You go, you know, I lost my job, but this is all part of God's plan. Because who knows, there's a greater job that's awaiting me. And that's why I lost this job and you're comforted. Maybe. But maybe you just suck. Maybe it's like, you know, you had a plan of how to work and how you're going to do your, your habits and you know, your work schedule, but it's not a good plan and that's why you got fired because it's you, bro. Or maybe it's someone else's plan taking place and that's why you got fired. Your boss hates you and you never knew it. And that's why he got you fired. You don't know. Or maybe you're going through a slump right now in life and there's something demonic happening where it's like, let me beat you down even more and so you lose your job. You don't know. It's really confusing. And that's why for a lot of us, when bad things happen, the main question we have is why, and we have a hard time answering that because you don't know who's causing this current situation to take place. But could it be that maybe we are asking the wrong question? Instead of asking why and looking comfort to that answer, maybe instead we are to ask what? What? The Bible never tells you why you lose your job, why someone passed away in your life. The Bible doesn't explain why you're going through what you're going through. But the Bible does tell you what will happen. Because the Bible is not a philosophy book, but it is a story of what God's going to do. In verse 20, we see what Joseph saw. He said, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. In other words... All these plans are happening, and we have no idea what's going to happen, but we do know that God's going to use all those plans and whatever good or bad comes out of it, and it's going to lead ultimately to God's plan, to goodness. Recently, I tried picking up cooking with my family pray for me. It's, I don't cook at all. But I was like, you know, I should help because we have three kids and many mouths to feed. And so I looked online for, a, like, I want to look for, like, the simplest dishes to cook. Like, I just want to look for something really simple. It doesn't take much time. And so I, I saw this picture of this chicken dish. It was a butter chicken. I was like, that looks delicious. And it's part of this list of, like, the 20 easiest recipes. So I was like, dude, let's, let's try it. So I went grocery shopping, and I got all the ingredients, and man, you know, there's your typical, like, buy chicken, buy salt, pepper, but there's some ingredients, I'm like, I have no idea what this is. Masala? What is that? I had never heard that before. Turmeric? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And I remember when I brought it home, and I was trying to make it, I would, you know, I want to see what the ingredients were, so I smelled the, the masala, I was like, oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. Smell Smelled terrible. This is like a, it's like a, it's a foreign dish. I didn't really, I thought it was just a typical like butter, savory dish, but it's like this foreign Eastern dish. So I was like, oh my gosh, this tastes terrible. The turmeric, the, the pepper, all of it tasted bad. And what was worse was when I mixed it together, I started mixing it because that's what the recipe was. And I tasted it even worse. So like, this is nasty. So I told my wife like, hey, cook up the chicken nuggets. We might be in trouble I think we can't feed the kids with this, you know, this dish. And she was just just try it, just cook it. If it's bad, we'll toss it out. And so I tried it. Super self conscious, cooking it. We made the dish. And I remember when I after it was put together, I brought it to my family, and I was freaked out because I didn't know if it was good. And we all ate it. Not bad. Not bad. In fact, it was it was uh, pretty good, and wasn't despite the ingredients. It was because of the ingredients, dude. The masala. That thing added an interesting kick at the end of that dish. I was like, yeah, that's that has a kick to it. The pepper added this nice spice that I, that's kind of unique. And the turmeric, it actually magnified everything. It brought everything together. I was like, dude, did all these individual ingredients that tasted so gross, it actually was not bad when all got put together and was cooked together. And I think that's kind of what Joseph is saying about the pain and the suffering that he experienced in his life. Individually, they didn't taste very good. The betrayal by his brothers, not good. Slavery in Egypt, not good. Imprisonment, not good. But he learned through his journey with God that God used all that and ultimately it led to good because he saw the results in verse, again, the last part of, verse, of, uh, uh, of the verse where it says, um, in verse 20, um, God planned it for good to bring about the present result the survival of many people. He saw God's plan get played out throughout his pain. I know personally, when I look at my life, I could imagine, and I'm sure if you look at your life, uh, there are a lot of things that happened that were bad, and in that moment, didn't really feel very good. Uh, one thing that I encourage like, people to do, I do this with every premarital couple, but I do this when I counsel people, is you ever have of a life map before? A life map is when you think about your life, and you put all these post-it notes, and you put like, the key moments of your life. So it looks something like this, right? So you go, like, I was born, you know, I went to grade school, like, something happened, and uh, the purpose of this life map, though, is when you put it down, usually what you're encouraged to do is write down the bad things that happened, too. Like, what are some painful moments? And I look back at my life, like, oh, you know, painful moment, family. Uh, my family as a child, when I was a kid, similar to a lot of y'all, immigrant family, so you would go through that immigrant, immigrant trauma that's kind of there, and so, you know, that was painful. I remember another moment in my life, uh, childhood racism. When I was a kid, I did not grow up in Sunny Hills or I did not grow up in Cerritos. I was like the only Asian kid in my neighborhood. I'm like, wow, of all the neighborhoods that my parents immigrated to, why here? For I was the only Asian kid. That's interesting. So that was painful. Another season in my life that I look back on is crisis of faith. I remember like really deconstructing my faith and going like, whoa, is God really real? That was really painful. Then I had another season in my life where I had a serious uh, a season of depression uh, where it was really hard to just function in life. Another season in life where I look back on early marriage, some of you might have heard that, where marriage was really hard and that was a dark season in my life. Another season in my life was church where there's a lot of church stuff and it was like, it's coming. And I'm just anticipating this is gonna be a painful, dark season in my life. And individually, I have no idea why this happened. Again, I don't know why my parents moved there. I don't know why I had to go through an immigrant family trauma that I went through. I don't know why I had to go through a season of depression, no idea. I know it was because of me. I know it was because of other people. I know it was because of Satan. I know it was because of God. But I do know this. I may not know why, but all of it, it's formed me into a certain type of person. And it's going to mix together, and it's either going to make me really bitter, or God's going to use all that to make me into a blessing. And it's your choice. It's your choice. I know I look at this, it's very easy for me to look at this and be very bitter. Like when I see people who grew up in Sunny Hills, I'm like, good for you, man. I wish I had that. I, I could become very bitter. Or I could realize, you know, if there's not everyone goes through that majority feeling where you're part of the majority crowd, and those of you who are not part of that, I just empathize with you. I get it. People who went through not the most beautiful marriage, but your marriage was rough. I'm like, dude, I get it. Come see me for counseling. I'll empathize. Those of you who like, had bad church experiences, I just empathize with you. I'm like, dude, I get it. Yeah, church could be hard and painful. Those of you who go through mental health crisis or depression, I'm like, dude, I get it. Like, I don't judge you. I, I totally understand how hard that is, and people don't get it. And I look at all that, I'm like, you know, at the very most, I could sense God is using all those painful moments to form me to be a certain way and to be a certain person. But at the very least, even if I don't see that, there is one thing I do know, which is God has something to say about all those painful moments that I experienced and that you experience. Even though I had a painful childhood, there's a promise that one day no child will ever experience any type of pain. All that suffering, all the racism that's there, you're not going to see that anymore one day. One day that struggle of faith that you might experience in your life, it will be replaced by sight. That's a promise that's there. One day, that feeling of depression that seems to surround your life, you will, it will be replaced by joy. That's a promise that God gives. That marriage that's not the ideal marriage that you're hoping for, one day it will actually point you to a greater marriage, and you experience that in your life. And the church that you might struggle to be a part of because you see so much sin and so much brokenness in the church, one day you'll see the church become the beautiful bride that Christ meant it to be. We don't know how, but we know that's what God says. And in that, my hope is in that promise. And Joseph, he had to learn that. He had to learn through this journey that that's how God does. All the brokenness that's there and it sucks when you're there, but he's gonna use all of that for good. He doesn't explain why, he just explains this is what's gonna happen. Do you believe this? Followers of Jesus, do you believe this? Do you believe God's gonna be faithful to his promise in your life? I know for a lot of us, it's hard for us, especially this generation. You know why? We don't stick around long enough to see God being faithful sometimes. You know what the average lifespan of a marriage is today? Seven years. The average marriage lasts seven years. And when you stick around for seven years, it's really hard to see how is God faithful. You know what the average career is in a job? Like how long does the average person work for at a company? Two years. Two years. Two years is the average year. So if you went through a crappy two years, man, you're just thinking that was a crappy two years. Can you just move on? You know how the average stay at a city or in a church is? I have no idea, but it's probably really short. It's really short. Because we bail when pain happens. When something painful happens, we just bail. Can we think, dude, this can't be God's plan. I'm going to do something else. But it could be that maybe, I'm not saying you've got to stay in your city forever or in your church forever, but it could be that the reason why it's hard for us to believe God works all things together for good, because we just bail when there's pain, and we don't see how God's going to use that pain to bring to something glorious. And maybe one thing that we could do in response is instead of bailing on God and what he calls us to do, take a moment to pause and trust and see what's God going to do. Because life, God never promises life will not be painful. In fact, He says the opposite: you will experience more pain if you follow Me. But He does promise, no matter what, He's going to use that pain to do something glorious. That's what Joseph realized, and that's what the story teaches us as well. But even for our future hope, at the end of the story of Joseph, it's really interesting. We see this final picture in Genesis thirty-seven and fifty, and if you pay attention really carefully. Um, the author is trying to subtly tell us that all the curses of Genesis three, all the bad things, they're being reversed right now. So, for example, uh, the the curse was, or the blessed God told Adam and Eve, "Be fruitful, and multiply." But there's a curse now, and so there's childbearing be hard, and you're not you're not seeing a lot of people being fruitful. But what you see in Genesis 47 is all of a sudden this reversal of that, where you see all this fruit happening. Verse Chapter 47 says this, Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it, and it became fruitful and very numerous. All these kids are all of a sudden coming. It's like, wow, God's multiplying. There's also this promise in Adam and Eve where you're going to have dominion over the earth, but then the curse, there's like thorns and thistles, it's going to be hard. But then what, we see, what do we see happen to Joseph? He, becomes, he has dominion. He becomes the right hand of Pharaoh. Chapter 41 of Genesis, Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in fine linen garments and he placed that gold chain around his neck. Wow, there's royalty. And this would be a great conclusion to Genesis if it happened not just with Joseph's family, but to all of us. Right now, this is just Joseph's family. And instead, we see, and not only that, but we also see the curse, it's not over because Joseph, what happens with the story? He dies. He dies. Death is still looming. Look what it says in verse 24 to 26. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land and to the land he swore he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones from here. And Joseph died at the age of 110. And here's the last verse of Genesis. And they embalmed him and placed him in the coffin in Egypt. Man, what a a downer. Genesis 1 is an awesome verse. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. At the end, Joseph's in a coffin. It's like, man, what a downer. The reason why the story ends this way is it's meant to make us anticipate something. Joseph, he tells his brothers, we're in Egypt right now, but when I die, take my bones and take it to the land of Canaan, which is really far, because Joseph, he believes that there's still another promise that's waited to be fulfilled. Yes, they are multiplying. Yes, they're becoming a royal nation. But Joseph, he says, there's one more, death. But take my bones to the land of Canaan because he is waiting something that God promises to do, eternal life, resurrection. And that's why we don't look at the Joseph story going, this is the end. But as we talked about the past few weeks, we anticipate there's a greater Joseph who's meant to come for all of us. See, Joseph, through his journey, he was able to forgive his brothers. But Jesus Christ, the greater Joseph, through his journey, he forgave everybody, all of humanity who comes before him. By dying on the cross, Jesus does not unleash God's vengeance upon us, but he takes upon the vengeance himself. Joseph, he saw through his pain that he would save many people from famine. But Jesus, through his pain, would save many people from death and hell. And Joseph, he trusted that one day his body will resurrect and his bones will rise in the land of Canaan. But Jesus, when he came, the resurrection already began. His body rose, no bone was broken. And that's why this Easter, we take a moment to pause and to remember Jesus rose from the dead. Death does not have the final word, but there's more to our story that is to come. And so as a church, what should our practice be in light of this passage? Very simple. This upcoming week, as your week is rough and as you go through different pain and the normalcy of life, would you reflect upon Holy Week? Daily reflections, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, that there is more to your story than the pain and suffering you are going through. There is resurrection, there is eternal life, there is Jesus, a greater Joseph, who is yet to come. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I invite us right now to take a moment to pause? And as we end and conclude the story of Joseph, maybe for some of us here as we see, what, God, what does it look like for God to work his plan of redemption in my life? For some of you, it might be, man, it's the relationship this is to. I haven't practiced forgiveness. Whatever it might be, maybe there might be something there for you to reflect upon and to confess. For others of us, it might be there's pain in your life that you experience now or even the past that still brings you down and it's hard to see how any goodness could come out of that. And maybe at this moment, we just profess to God, we don't understand what's happening, but we are hoping that God can give us strength to trust that God understands what's happening. Or maybe for some of us here, for a lot of us, it's hard to really have a sense of future hope because life looks bleak. But maybe for us, it's this Easter season to pay attention to the, what God has, has done already through Jesus Christ and what he promises to do to all those who are in Christ Jesus. So wherever you're at, can we take a moment to pause, to reflect, to profess, confess, and to share with God what's in our heart? And then afterwards, I'll close us all together in prayer. So let's take a moment to pause and pray in response and I'll pray for us.